New York City's population is not only getting bigger, it's getting grayer. In fact, the number of seniors in the city is expected to jump some 40% by the year 2030. Elected officials and advocates are now working to create a blueprint to meet the needs of the city's aging population. Good morning. I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're talking about what the city can do to make sure its older residents can thrive here. In a moment, we'll be joined by a panel of experts to discuss a variety of issues. But first, let's hear directly from some of the city's seniors about what it's like to grow old in the Big Apple. My name is Rosa Cooper and I live in the Bronx, but I'm originally from Ponce, Puerto Rico. I am a senior citizen, very proud senior citizen. It's too expensive to live in New York City, especially for the uh, housing. We don't have enough housing for poor people. And many, many, many of us, we are poor. To live from Social Security is very hard. You got to have money to buy food. You look at these prices, every day they go up. My name is Nate Shear. I'm from Bayside, New York. My name is Ellen Lampack. I live in the Bronx. In this particular neighborhood where I live, it's an aging neighborhood. There's nothing within the neighborhood itself for seniors. You do have Bronx House, which is like a Y, but there's nothing specifically here within this area, and that makes it difficult to... Joining me now in the studio, as promised, is our panel of experts. Nancy Waxdean is executive director of United Neighborhood Houses. Nancy, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you, George. Also with us is Rita Henley Jensen. She's the editor-in-chief of Women's E-News. She also contributed to a book called Retire in New York City, Even If You're Not Rich. Rita, welcome. Thank you so much. And in studio with us is Catherine Thurston. She's the Director of Clinical Services at SAGE, which stands for Services and Advocacy for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Elders. Catherine, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. And joining us by phone this morning is Bobby Sackman. She's the Director of Public Policy of the Council for Senior Centers and Services. Bobby, hello. Good morning. Thank you. I want to go around the room to start things off and just get a sense of what your organizations do. So, Nancy, let's start with you. United Neighborhood Houses of New York is the federation of 34 community centers, settlement houses, neighborhood centers in various communities around the city. They provide a variety of social services, educational services, recreational services. And so among the services they provide are um, services to older adults, uh, every ranging from services for very healthy people to very frail people in their homes. People have this idea that old people, oh, old means sick or frail. Well, old does not mean sick or frail. Old means also vigorous, vital, interested in learning, interested in doing. So we're trying to um, meet the various needs of the very, very diverse older population. Rita, what about you? Well, Women's E-News covers issues of particular concern to women. And let me tell you, retirement and the lack of money in retirement for women is an incredibly significant issue. We don't have the pensions. Often our spouses die, and they don't leave us their pension. We, Many of the women entering retirement age did not work. If they did work, they didn't get paid, as we all know, 73 cents on the dollar, So at the same time, 
They're living longer, healthier, more active lives, and they are very much my guests, the cohort that you're talking about, healthy, interested, alive, want to participate. So there's this huge um, talent base out there but uh, that's scrimping. And Catherine, tell us about SAGE. SAGE, as you mentioned, George, stands for Services and Advocacy for GLBT Elders, and we provide social services and community building and advocacy services to as I said, gay, lesbian, bi, and trans folks over the age of 60 all throughout New York City and over the age of 50 for those folks who are HIV positive. What's unique about the needs of the elderly gay population? For gay and lesbian couples who have been together for many years and have been aging together, they do not have the rights under our federal laws that heterosexual couples have. So, for example, if a couple of, of, a, of a gay couple of 40 years, is, if one person in that couple is widowed, he is not entitled to any of the Social Security benefit as a surviving partner. So our clients struggle with financial issues, with issues of of feeling isolated from the community around them, their community of their ethnic community, their family communities. So they are really even more marginalized in a way than elders in New York City who are in the heterosexual community. We'll talk more about those issues in this next half hour, but let's check in with Bobby Sackman. Bobby, tell us about your organization. The Council of Senior Centers and Services was begun in 1979, and we have over 200 member agencies that serve 300,000 elderly New Yorkers. As people live longer, what's their quality of life? If they go to a senior center, if they need a van to take them to the doctor for Meals on Wheels. So the very nitty-gritty neighborhood services that help people not be isolated, you know, get what they need, nutritious meals is another example. And, and some of the issues that we do focus on a lot are um, we have a 20% poverty rate in this city among the elderly, twice the national rate. We just released a hunger in, among the elderly study in New York City. You know, how does the city prepare and take on this age boom? And that's the, the issues we deal with every day. Let me ask you this question too, Bobby. How the heck do you identify the aging population? Should we say senior? Should we say older New Yorker? Should we say baby boomer? What's right? We still use the word senior, which by the definition of the Older Americans Act, which is a federal funding source for services, senior is actually defined as 60. So I'm sure as we boomers approach 60, we're going to want to change that name, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess senior is for somebody 10 years beyond you at least. Nancy, go ahead. Within the older adult population, if you will, or the senior population, there are many different generations now. I mean, I, I said this before, but, you know, you have people who are 60 and you have people who are 90, and their needs are very different. So I think we need to start planning for that eventuality. As that reality grows, as people live longer and people are healthier, there needs to be a different set of services and activities that are available to them. Well, the bottom line, Rita, is these folks are very independent individuals who want to do things for themselves. When Nancy was talking, I was thinking about my building in Washington Heights Inwood. We have somebody who retired and is extremely depressed and gaining a lot of weight. Where do we go? We have a woman who was the most vital link in our community and caring. And so during the AIDS crisis, she was always the one who found the dead bodies and alerted us. And now she's a little nuts. Who do we reach out to? This scenario is played out over and over in the buildings of New York City 
And it's not like their neighbors don't care. It's a great point, Rita, because uh, we did a report, United Neighborhood Houses did a report a couple of years ago on isolated seniors. It was called Aging in the Shadows. And we said that the city must respond by developing protocols for exactly that situation you described, for neighbors, for friends. We need to publicize what to do how the city should be responding, and there has to be some kind of centralized information for the uh, for the average citizen. Catherine, I would imagine that growing old is particularly challenging for the gay population for a number of reasons, but for one thing, because they're afraid to seek out services because they may also be afraid of discrimination. These folks grew up in an era where it wasn't as easy to be gay. It is very difficult, and It's also a very good illustration of the difference between being a 60-year-old LGBT person or a 90-year-old LGBT person, because one of the things we need to remember is that for many of our clients at SAGE, they discovered their sexual identity in 1945 or 1955, when it was a completely different era, and while arguably this era is different, or maybe not as different as we would like it to be, certainly it was you were risking your, your career, you were risking your, if you were in the military, you were certainly risking that. You're risking being ostracized by family and friends to come out. So many of the clients at Sage are kind of immigrants here in New York. They've escaped their original homes and are living here. And it's very difficult for them to access services because of that. It's also difficult because that kind of life forms a very resilient and very independent kind of person, the person who is least likely to ask for help. And, you know, I've often said when I do public speaking that independence and resilience are personality traits for a straight older person, but they're survival skills for older LGBT folks. One of the things that a group of organizations working with the older LGBT population have been talking about is the need for training, um, competency training throughout senior service organizations around the city. And what happens is that, for example, the Department for the Aging will say, you know, if you want to bid on a contract for services, you should have competency in different, you know, diverse populations, including LGBT. But they don't put a dime in the contract for it, and everything costs money. We need to have a commitment on the part of the city, whether it's the Department for the Aging, the Department of Health, HRA, Whoever deals with older adults in this city and say, you know what, we're going to put our money where our mouth is and provide funding so a group like SAGE or others could do this kind of training. Nancy, you wanted to add on to that? The overall budget, city, state, federal budgets, to provide support for these kinds of services has remained flat. And it's only going to get worse. You know, we have to do a surge, you know, like we have a, a surge in Iraq. We have to do a surge of funding here to meet the needs of the burgeoning population. Do you have hope in this blueprint that the city is working on? Christine Quinn, the city council speaker, held a news conference not too long ago to talk about this blueprint, to plan for the future. What I'm a little concerned about is that it's not the mayor's blueprint. You know, the mayor did a blueprint a couple of, uh, about a year ago, he called the 2030 Sustainability Plan, Plan NYC, and it talked about developing... The, the need for parks, for roads, for water treatment, you know, a whole bunch of physical infrastructure, but it did not talk about the need to develop the human services infrastructure. Ready to go ahead. When you talk about the human infrastructure, that's why people are here in the city. That is the basis of its booming economy, and we, we understand we may take a hit in the next year or so, but that's the, the vitality of this city, that coming back from 9-11, it's the input into the 
human resources. What about the business world? Is the business world receptive to the needs of today's aging population? I think, as in, as with child daycare, I think it's been slow, long time coming for the business world to recognize that caregiving for dependent parents, in most cases aunts and uncles, whatever, is something that they have to pay attention to. And the one thing about aging is it affects all of us. Mm-hmm. We all end up with elderly parents, if, you know, if we're lucky, right? We all get elderly if we're lucky. So I'm sure we've all had conversations with even elected officials asking us for advice or people in corporations. Um, and so there becomes a common ground, and I think we can use that in a positive way to say this isn't something that's foreign to your experience. This is the most human experience there is. And I think as the baby boomers age, which and as the baby, baby boomers... Um have been a very uh, potent force as we move through the uh, the life cycle. I think there's going to be a new demand for a better system of care for old people because we're not going to take what's been uh, what right. is currently the case now. Where the hell no, we won't go for generation. Yeah, we're not going into nursing homes. <laughs> A lot of people decide to grow old in urban environments because it's easy to get around. You don't need the car, especially at night. Things can get difficult driving at night. Is the city's transportation system up to snuff, do you think, to handle this growing population? You know, there's a couple of issues there. A lot of seniors can't use subways. Either physically they can't, or I also think there's still some fear about it. So they, they use buses a lot. There's a major problem of of accessoride, which we all know just came off a strike. Um, accessoride has been a dysfunctional, seriously dysfunctional system for the elderly for many, many years. So I think we need to look at different layers of mass transit or, 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 or accessible transportation. We're going to need more community-based transportation. You need to bring it to where the people are and what is their level of being able to wait for transportation and really access it. Catherine? Another point that we need to remember is that for many of our seniors in New York City, they are living in walk-up apartments. Mm, So for some people, they can have a subway at their corner and they cannot access it. So part of what we've been dealing with at SAGE is kind of working with our transportation systems that we have to help bring our clients from their door of their apartment you know, outside of their apartment, downstairs and out into the world. So it might feel like we are transit rich, but sometimes for our clients, it's not helpful. You know, and I want to say that to answer that, that one of our agencies had done a um, a, a collaboration with Cornell Med School to get medical um, students to go up to the fifth floor walk up to do pay house calls. Now, there's an old-fashioned concept because those folks couldn't get out. And so I think we're going to have to do some kind of innovative work there to, to try to bring services to the people when they can't uh, get it themselves. This, these problems, and it goes back to what Nancy raised earlier, and we totally agree with, with UNH on this, is that we have no plan, and the plan is multi-layered. You know, at the same time, we have the best educated and wealthiest elderly generation coming up in some ways, whether it's middle or upper middle class. We also have the poorest. It's all happening together, you know, because life is not just simple boxes. It's it's all happening at the same time. We're working on an initiative from funding through city council. The fastest growing group of people with HIV who are HIV positive in New York City are over the age of 50. Yeah, Bobby, a lot of people think that once you hit a certain age, you no longer have sex, but that is not true. Yeah, 
We don't want to think that. <laughs> Speaking but for our entire generation. I think it's a really important point to talk about diversity. As Bobby said, we have Chinese, we have immigrant people, we have Latino people, we have poor people, we have middle class people, and there just has to be a whole range of activities and services that are available. And we will, as I said before, I think we the baby boomers, we're going to create some new models, but we need a government partner to do that. It just can't be citizen action. Is translation part of the problem for the aging immigrant population here in New York City? As Catherine was saying about the LGBT population, uh, immigrants do not want to go near government services. That's why agencies like ours are the only place that they're going to even yeah. approach because they we speak the same language. We're the welcoming. Maybe their grandchildren go to the after-school program. So then it's not considered to be government. And so that's why this nonprofit uh, participation here in, in solving this problem is crucial because immigrants are not going near a government office. The beauty of the programs that a lot of the nonprofits run, whether it's senior centers, if you're familiar, you know, with NORCs and other programs, exactly what Nancy just said. You know, nobody asks you for your documentation. They have staff, you know, often that speaks different languages, and so they literally speak your language. I mean, imagine being 80 years old and all you speak is Spanish or Russian or Chinese, and you get a letter from the government. I mean, you're going to freak out. And so who is going to help explain it to you? Um, and they have ESL classes and citizenship classes around the city at some of the centers. There's a lot of work going on with elderly immigrants. But we did a study called Old and Poor in New York City, released it last year after the Mayor's Poverty Commission left out seniors. And, and mind you, that he left out a lot of populations, but that was one of them. And 20 to 25 percent of the seniors in, in uh, the different boroughs, it varies among the boroughs, don't receive Social Security or Medicare. The very bedrock of who, what we think of as aging, you know, at least you have some bottom line money in health care, they're not even getting. And I think a lot of that is legal and illegal immigration and people working, again, in that underground, whatever you call it, economy where you didn't pay in, domestic workers, that kind of thing. So we have, like, layers of, of poverty and challenges here to um, to help people with, and I, I don't know how visible that's happening. And on the other side, right in front of us now, the 85-plus group is the largest, is the fastest-growing segment of the city's population. We have never been here in history before. That's right. Rita? Well, I just would run to emphasize the gender angle. I run Women's E-News. If we're talking about the elderly right. and especially the elderly poor, the people who did not participate in the co the economy sufficiently to be eligible, we're talking about mainly women. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning we're talking about issues related to New York City's aging population. The city's senior population is expected to rise by 40 percent by the year 2030. Joining me in the studio this morning is Rita Henley-Jensen. She's the editor-in-chief of Women's E-News. Also with us, Nancy Waxstein, executive director of United Neighborhood Houses. Catherine Thurston, director of clinical services at SAGE, which stands for Services and Advocacy for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Elders. And on the phone with us is Bobby Sackman. She's the Director of Public Policy for the Council for Senior Centers and Services. Catherine, let me talk to you about the elderly gay population, mm -hmm. because these are folks who can't get their partners' pensions and things like that. That's so right. they're dealing, as you mentioned at the top of the show, with the financial burden as well 
unlike perhaps a heterosexual married couple. Absolutely. In fact, it almost feels like you take the you take all these problems from column A through column D and older LGBT folks have them. So one example is this not being able to receive your partner's federal Social Security benefit. We also have people who, and I've heard the story so often, who do not feel comfortable going to their local senior center because they don't feel that they can be authentically who they are. I just was told a really wonderful story recently by a great sage client who's in his 80s who goes to a very, very nice and pretty affirming senior center, but he's a handsome man who drives a car. And every woman in that senior center tries to talk to him. And he says that as soon as his lunch is over, he opens up, he carries crime and punishment with him in his bag, and he opens it up, and he starts to read it because he doesn't want to have to deflect all that attention. So we're also really talking about whether it's LGBT people or whether it's people from a certain area of China or people from a certain area of Latin America. You want to be recognized. You want to feel that where you are going for services is a place that understands you and that you feel like you can be reflected in the other people around you. And that is a very very difficult thing for LGBT folks, especially outside of Manhattan, to find. Bobby, do the senior centers here in the city understand the baby boomer generation? I get the sense that they probably don't. How do you serve people of two or sometimes even three generations um, on limited budgets, quite frankly? So I, I think that what's happening is people are, people being staffed at agencies are trying. They're trying, and they have introduced new programming. It will continue to evolve. And what will change is that our generation, because I'm a boomer, we're going to be more demanding. We're not going to be the passive, which is often our parents' generation. So I, I think in some fairness to the programs, we have to say that they're really working hard to bring in the, the boomers. And we're in New York City. If you're 60 years old and you're 65, and you, your mobility is good, you have, you don't have to be rich, but you have some money and you can partake in classes or go to the museum if that's what you like, or you know, sometimes there's discount tickets for you know, different things for older people. Why aren't you going to do that? You're going to do that like crazy. So there's, there's a lot of other options out there. Nancy? Well, yeah, I was going to say a, a similar point that a lot of nonprofit agencies now are piloting some new kinds of programming, whether it's yoga or Pilates classes or whatever. They're experimenting about what will attract uh, the kind of healthier, younger. And, you know, I call it kind of beyond bingo. Yeah, Bobby's quite right that there's a <laughs> beyond, bingo. <laughs> beyond bingo. And I think we need, you know, uh, some support. I know we need some support from our government funding partners to say, okay, let's cha- challenge these agencies. They, they're great. These agencies can come up with some terrific programs, but you know they just can't do it with no money. You know th- that is the reality. And you know everybody tries to fundraise and fundraise, and but you need some core support. And if you want to innovate and you want to create some new things, you need some new money. We've been talking a lot about helping to make sure seniors can live active lives in New York. But there comes a time when a senior may have to enter a nursing facility. Mm -hmm. Are there enough nursing facilities in New York to accommodate this booming population in the future? Absolutely not. And not only, it's a supply question and it's also an affordability question. There are a lot of uh, assisted living, independent living. There's a lot of, you know, gradations on the um, institutional scale here. But if you're very wealthy, you can find a place that will cost you $8,000 a month, and, and that's fine. But there's a, a severe lack of affordable options for people. Assisted living in New York City, and I think actually around the country pretty much, 
is a pretty elitist service right now, or accommodation for people. If if you either have money or you've had a house to sell, then you can uh, enter assisted living, and there's problems of what happens if somebody runs out of money. My organization actually also represents a lot of senior housing providers that build independent housing and, and sometimes do bring in services. And without going into technicalities, there was a state law passed a few years ago on assisted living that has made it extremely difficult to even think of, of building affordable assisted living because it's going to get so regulated and push the price up. And when you push the price up, the money comes out of the senior's pocket. Um, but there is a whole other level, George, before we get to the nursing home door. And that's what we're all involved in, and it's the in-home side. It's the Meals on Wheels. It's the home care. It is the van to get you out. It could be friendly visiting. There's there's um, folks who do in-home you know, therapy, mental health services, which we actually haven't touched on today. So there's a whole gamut of things that, again, you know, with proper funding, we could strengthen and build. So I would also say that, yes, if, if someone really needs to go into a nursing home permanently, because now a lot of nursing homes are sort of rehab, you come out, um, then they need to be doing as good a job as they can do, and we have a distance on that. But we think that we're building a community-based system, and we're, you know, we're urging the state who wants to close nursing home beds to reinvest the money, mm. the Medicaid money and other money, sort of what happened with mental health, except this time do the good job, not really what happened with mental health, as we all know, but really do a community. And number one on our state agenda with the Spitzer administration and the legislature is a Community Reinvestment Act. We're asking for $100 million up front to start strengthening what we already have across the state, which is a lot of what we've talked about today in New York City, um, to keep people in, you know, our term is aging in place. Right. And that's a very real thing. And just one final thing, there was a Supreme Court uh, decision called the Olmstead decision in 1999 under the American with Disabilities Act that said it is a civil right to stay in the, in, in the community. Unfortunately, what the court did not do is say that somebody has to pay for it. <laughs> so the battle is how do you take the money out of the institutional bias of nursing homes and even hospitals and put it into the community? And you know that's a huge battle. It's David and Goliath. And, and you know, every survey, every study, every focus group shows that older people want to remain in their homes, and that's the place where they can maintain their health best if they have, as Bobby said, some of these services. So it's not like the consumer has not spoken. It's just that the system has not caught up with that. This is Rita. <laughs> Their neighbors do too. It's not an isolated, I keep coming back, it's not an isolated problem. These are my neighbors and I need them to make my community and they're diverse. You That's why I moved to New York City. What about housing protections though to make sure that seniors aren't priced out, kicked out, etc.? We're working with a coalition and I know UNH is part of it as well. On a right to counsel, this is in New York City, right to counsel and housing court. Um, and our, our uh, motto now is, would you bring your grandmother to housing court without a lawyer? Um, you have thousands of seniors that are facing eviction. Can you imagine, again, being 80 years old and walking into housing court? One lawyer said to me, I wouldn't even send a lawyer to housing court. It's a very difficult atmosphere, to say the least. Um, and they should have a right to counsel, which just means you have a lawyer. The, the, the landlord has a lawyer, but the tenant often doesn't. And 
there's a, an organization or part of HRA called Adult Protective Services in the city, which really deals with the most vulnerable at-risk seniors. And 40% of the cases at Adult Pre- Protective Services are people facing eviction. Mm. So if you ask where are we going to get the money for the lawyers, I would suggest we're already spending the money at Adult Protective Services and probably health care and other things. So that's a huge way to protect seniors. You know these landlords want these folks out of these rent-stabilized apartments. Right. The average age in rent-stabilized apartments is pushing up to about 55 now because nobody leaves. As gentrification progresses uh, in its march, in march throughout the city, and we're not just talking Manhattan now, we're talking about neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the Bronx, where traditionally seniors have lived for a long time, and often in one, two, three family homes. And that's where rent stabilization, by the way, and rent control have never been in play. So that's a really vulnerable population because of this trend. As, you know, landlords, owners know that they can get a lot more money in Williamsburg and Greenpoint now by renting to hipsters. Well, those are, you know, two family homes. There's no protections. So I think it's a really, really crucial point um, uh, that Bobby raises is that there needs to be a special level of protection for seniors. Nancy Waxteen, you are the executive director of United Neighborhood Houses. Thanks for coming in. I'm glad to be here. Rita Henley-Jensen, editor-in-chief of Women's E-News. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. Catherine Thurston, Director of Clinical Services at SAGE, which again stands for Services and Advocacy for Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, and Transgender Elders. Thank you. Thank you, George. And thank you finally to Bobby Sackman. She's the Director of Public Policy of the Council for Senior Centers and Services. Bobby, thank you. Thank you very much. My name is Dorothy Landman from the Bronx. I was born right here in the Bronx. It's a perfect place to get old, that's right. You come out. You see people, young people, you could talk to someone. It's wonderful here. I wouldn't live in suburbia if they gave it to me for a million dollars. My name is Sid Levine. I'm from the Bronx, New York. To me, New York City is the greatest. We all got our problems, and we got plenty of them. But it's still the greatest. It's just beautiful. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks, as always, to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.